Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Kenny Vaughn. Kenny Vaughn is one of the great journeyman guitarists here in Nashville that's played with everyone from Lucinda Williams and Patti Loveless to mo more recently playing with Pretenders or doing the Sweetheart of the Rodeo tour with uh, Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn. He's been with Marty Stewart for 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> 20. So do do yeah. you get a gold watch or anything at that point? Uh, five more years. Five more years. Okay. <laughs> so, yes. So today we have Kenny Warren. And thank you so much for coming down. Thanks thank for having me. I'm glad we finally figured it out. Yes. We've been trying to do this for a while. It, it, we have been trying. So I'm glad mm. we were finally yeah. able to, to do this. So I, I have to ask, uh, just... How did the Sweetheart of the Rodeo kind of anniversary tour thing come about? Because I Well, um, we had been Roger's band on several occasions. He was on our TV show a couple of times, on the Marty Stewart TV show, and we backed him up on there. And then we did some live dates with him um, out on the West Coast. And everywhere he goes, all the people that have been his fans for since 1965 show up. Yeah. And, and when we were out in California... We had all these old, folky, hippie people coming up and saying, you guys are the best band that Roger's ever had, man. We've seen him, we've been watching him since 65. He's never sounded that good, you know? And we were glad to hear that, of course, yeah. you know? But um, he's, you know, he's pretty, uh, he's kind of a standoffish kind of fellow and uh, pretty quiet and easy guy to work with. He's really good. He still plays all his parts off the record perfectly and sings well. And um, so he enjoyed it, and we we did like a couple of different times where we would back him up, you know. We, you know, he kept coming back for more, using yeah. us, and yeah. we fa figured, well, he must like us, you know. And then he called Marty one day on the phone. And he said, "Hey, uh, Chris's house was in a fire, you know, and the kitchen burned, and yeah, let's help him out." And you know, we we're trying to think of something, and it's the 50th anniversary of the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, and uh, you know, the only two birds from the original band on that album were Chris and Roger. Right. And then it was uh, Graham Parsons was in the band for five months, and he was on that album. Um, people think he was in the band longer than that, but he was. They he lasted five months before they said, <laughs> "Okay, you got to go." You got to. And um, <laughs> I had uh, Chris's cousin yeah. was the drummer on that record. I don't even know the guy's name. He wasn't in there very long either. Yeah. But uh, anyway. They figured, well, Chris and Roger can go out and do this anniversary tour and make Chris some money and use us because it'll be easy. And so um, we made our bass player learn all Lloyd Green's parts and made him play steel on the tunes where Lloyd played. And then he played bass on all the other songs. I switched over to bass when he played steel. And Hillman played bass on a couple of tunes. Uh, and man, he sounded just like the record. It was weird because he was playing our bass player's bass and rig, but when he went into the intro to Eight Miles High, it sounded like the record. <laughs> it was like, wow, you know. What, what is it about Hillman's touch on the bass? What was it about it? He's real forceful. And uh, it just, he just has a sound when he plays. He has yeah. a tone, you know, yeah. the way he picks it, you know, uses a pick. And just the way he plays it, just like, there it is, you know, it was really great. And they were really nice to work with. I'd known him since the 80s, where I had worked with the, the first band that I played with in Nashville was called the Sweethearts of the Rodeo. They were two girls from 
Los Angeles, the two sisters from Los Angeles, and they had a band, and they had some country hits, and I toured with them for five years. And we opened for Desert Rose Band a lot. That was Hillman's band at the time, so I knew him from then. Yeah. yeah. I, I had read that Crosby owns the, uh, like the, the trademark or the right yes, to use he the does. bird's name. So this yeah. was not marketed as the bird. No, was, it was, uh, it was uh, Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman, Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives touring uh, the Birds album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, 50th anniversary concert. And so they used the artwork from the album, and, you know, that was how they did that. And, uh, And, and you know, Crosby still wants to work with them, I think. Really? And um, they like Dave, you know. I I don't think that, I can't see that that that's going to happen happen because McGuinn has really stringent travel, Habits. He won't get on an airplane. If he goes to Europe, he takes the boat. The boat, um, yeah. and he won't go north of um, like I ten in in the winter months. You know, he's you know he's very picky about where he'll play and when. You know, yeah. according to the weather. He lives in Florida, so his wife and him drive everywhere in their van, and wow. that's how they get along. And they have a great. You know, he does a lot of solo shows and. They have a good time going out on the road. They're they're they go out a lot, yeah. you know, in the summertime and the um, you know late spring and early fall, yeah. and they do well just as a team there. He and his wife. So how did you fit it in that fit in in that situation where I get, where Marty, of course, is kind of playing Clarence's parts and other other things? So what, well, what, you know, I played. Um, you know, I grew. I had their first album when it came out yeah. when I was. Um, I guess I would have been 11 when their first album came out. And I had all their albums up until through Notorious Bird Brothers. And I kind of, like the time, by the time Clarence was in the band officially, he was on a lot of those records that I owned, yeah. but he was never listed in the band. But, you know, he's on a couple of songs on, he's on at least one on 5D, he's on two on Younger Than Yesterday, he's on Notorious Bird Brothers. And, um, you know, so he's on those three. Yeah. And he, he might be on Sweetheart of the Rodeo. I don't know. I he mean, is. He is? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. The, not, not, not all the cuts, but... Yeah. I think they overdubbed him in L.A. They didn't, yeah. cut, they didn't cut everything here. It's just yeah. mostly here. Some of it was cut here and some of it in L.A. I, I was very familiar with the material. And I, some of those songs, uh, McGuinn, on the record, he, there's two 12 strings. There's the one that's playing the solo... And the, and the one that's playing the the figure keeps going through the solo, you know. Yeah. So on those songs, I played 12-string, the Rickenbacker 12. So we had two. So when he went to the solo part, the, the other guitar didn't drop out. Right. And that worked out well. Then I played the, um, the solo that he played on Crosby's Gretsch on Have You Seen Her Face. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was Roger on that, playing Crosby's Gretsch. Wow. And uh, which I think thought it was a fabulous guitar part. Yeah, know, it is. I was like, "Who is that man? Yeah. Who is Roger? Who played that?" He says, "That was me playing David's guitar." I was like, "Wow, it's really good." I played acoustic, bass, yeah. you know. Yeah, whatever it needed to be covered. Yeah. and you know, on the wasn't born to follow. Mar- Marty and I both switched on our phase shifters and our fuzz faces, and uh, you know, went in the solo section. Went that psychedelic thing yeah. in the middle we did that and it really worked out well like we really 
did a good job of replicating the sound of the record. Now, to shift gears completely, what about the Pretenders? How did you end up working with Chrissy Hine? And I was just, I was doing a lot of sessions for Dan Auerbach yeah. and at that time, and he was using me a lot. And uh, he was producing records, you know, for whoever he could, you know, whatever he thought was a good idea. And he called me up one day, he said, hey man, Chrissy Hines is going to make a record. And um, are you available? I said, yeah, I'm available. So we had a good time. Yeah. It was uh, me on me and Dan. She didn't play. She just sang live in the, uh, in the room through a speaker, through a voice of the theater, just a mono yeah. speaker, you know, right there looking at the drummer. And um, she was really good. I mean, she, a lot of those vocals were, you know, she, she didn't take any time to get it. She was a boom, 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 had it. And uh, then it was a very quick album to make. And, you know, relatively, you know, compared to most. Yeah. And, uh, and Richard um, Swift on drums, sadly, he's deceased. Um, he was great. God, he was great. He's a great musician. He's so good. Um, great singer, great keyboard player, great everything. He's a genius. And uh, Dave Rowe and myself. So it was nice. a small little outfit. And I think, I think that Richard probably played the keyboards if there were any you know, on that record. I don't think there was any other keyboard player there. Let's go. I'm, I'm real curious about, uh, you know, in a lot, of, a lot of interviews and a lot of your history, it's, it's bandied about the, the whole, you know, Johnny Smith and Bill Frizzell yeah. thing. So that gets talked about a lot. But Talk about but, luck. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so I guess... Yeah, so early guitar teachers you had. Well, uh, Johnny, was, Johnny was never my guitar teacher, okay. but my dad was a jazz buff. He wasn't a musician, but he was an artist, and he was a, had a nice big component stereo back in the late 50s, and uh, he had a great record collection yeah. of jazz stuff. And, um, and it, it was pretty extensive. You know, he had Mose Allison. And he had, uh, like, Jimmy Smith albums with Kenny Burrell on guitar, Tony Matola albums, Johnny Smith records, and, and uh, all kinds of cool stuff. Really great. Chico Hamilton. I mean, and I didn't know that everybody's dad didn't have those records. I, I thought that everybody had those records. I was like, yeah, him. I was like, that's what you listen to, man. And Woody Herman, yeah. You know, I, I, I knew all this stuff and listened to it a lot, and... And I especially liked the Jimmy Smith stuff with Kenny Burrell. I thought that was really groovy. I was drawn to that sound, you know. So, and, and you so what happened was in 64, uh, February of 64, when the Beatles came on TV, I was 10. And uh, I was like, I want to play the guitar, man. <laughs> you know, I want to do that. I was, and everybody did, you know. I mean, yeah. it was like overnight, everybody, you know, grew their hair out and, one and started listening to British groups like literally, literally within three weeks. The world changed completely, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy, it was like instant, you know. And and so, my dad was like, Well, you know, you know, and I kept bugging him about it. And he says, Well, I want to, 
you know, so he one night he says, we're going to go see my friend Johnny play and Johnny Smith, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, so he takes me down to Shaner's. Johnny lived in Colorado Springs and he would drive up every Saturday night to play with the Neil Bridge Trio at Shaner's and my dad sat me right in the front, right in front of Johnny, just an alumni club, you know, and there's this guy, you know, he looks like a secret service agent in a gray suit with a skinny tie and a crew cut sitting on a stool playing his Gibson guitar, you know, and just, you know, beautiful, you know, yeah. playing the most beautiful stuff. And I'm, and he says, now pay close attention to the way he plays. Watch his fingers, you know, but this guy's a really good guitar player. I was like, yeah, you know, man. So we would go down there quite a bit. And one night, my dad at dinner, he's like, we got to go to, down to Shaner's tonight, you know. I was like, okay, you know, and we go down there and he keeps looking at the door and about halfway through the show, in walks Chet Atkins and Homer and Jethro and they walked in, you know, and went to the back of the room. And Johnny ends the song and he's like, I see my, uh, some of my friends are out here. Uh, well, maybe I could get my friend Chet to come up and play the guitar. And Chet's like, no way, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, maybe I can get my friend Homer Haynes to get up and play the guitar. He's a great guitar player. And Homer's like, no. <laughs> he says, well, I know I can get my friend Jethro up to play my guitar. So Jethro walks up, takes Johnny's guitar, sits down, and plays the most incredible jazz ballad. I don't remember what song it was, but it was amazing. Yeah. Played the shit out of it. I was like, and I knew who they were because my parents were big Homer and Jethro fans, uncharacteristically. They didn't listen to country music, but they liked Homer and Jethro because they were comedians and, you know, kind of hip. Yeah. You know, they weren't very square it really they they sort of math they pretended to be hillbillies but they were pretty sophisticated cats and anyway he was really good and I was like wow he plays some mandolin but he's a great guitar player you know and so that got me really wanting to play the guitar and you know between wanting to play rock and roll with you know the Beatles stuff and so Johnny had a music store and my dad um, sort of you know made a deal with him I think he gave got us a Telecaster for like, I think we paid $175 for a brand new 66 Tele with a case, you know, which probably was about $100 less than it would have been otherwise. It was a lot of money. Yeah. Well, yeah. And yeah. I had a paper route that summer and I managed to save like probably about a hundred bucks. And um, my dad, you know, picked up the rest of it. And I had this old crummy beater guitar that, uh, uh, he he was going to trade in, yeah, but Johnny said, no, you don't need to do that, you know. And that's how I got my first guitar, and then I started taking lessons from a guy who was a rock and roll guitar player. He was probably about seven years older than me, and uh, he had a 53 Tele. He was the guy that told me to buy a Telecaster. I was going to buy a Jaguar. He said, man, you can't buy a Jaguar. I said, no, oh, man, I want to play a Jaguar. That's what the Ventures play, you know. I want that sound, you know, the surf sound. He's like, no, man. And he, I had that record having a rave up with the Yardbirds, and there's a picture of the Yardbirds on the cover, and Jeff Beck's holding an Esquire. And he pointed to Jeff Beck in the, in the Esquire. He says, if, if you want to sound like that guy, you're never going to get there with a Jaguar, man. You got about it, tell you. I was like, <laughs> okay. I do want to sound like that guy, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather sound like that guy than anybody else on earth at that time. You know, that was sort of the, the pinnacle of rock guitar was Jeff Beck and the Yardbirds in 1966. You really couldn't go any further. 
yeah. at that time. You know, absolutely. He was the number one cat. Yeah. I remember when they played on Shindig, and they were playing live. And they did "I'm a Man," and at the end they do this rave up, and the credits are rolling, and he takes his guitar like this, and he looks at the camera, and he takes a slide, and goes, <laughs> making all this noise scraping the slide up and down the strings, you know, with this devilish look on his face as he's looking into the camera and the band's just raging and I'm just like, what just happened? You know, and then the, the credits were rolling and that, that was the end of the show and I was like, what just happened? Yeah. What was that? What you happened know, to like, me? What, you know, it's like the world went from black and white to Technicolor yeah. in like, in one, you know, that, that little, you yeah. know, that last minute of TV, I was like. He clued you in. Yeah, I was like, wow, you know, so, yeah. So Johnny Smith never gave you a, a lesson? Um, I would, I got, you know, I would, when I was actually a professional guitar player in my uh, late teens and early 20s, I used to go down and hang out with him sometimes okay. in, his, in his store and, you know, he'd show us stuff. Okay. Yeah, but and I didn't study with him. Okay. And the Bill Frizzell thing happened I, I used to frequent a place called Melody Music that was uh, originally owned by a, a husband and wife, and uh, they were a Gibson dealer. And so they would have all, they would have one of everything every year. You know, they had all the, the brand new Gibson guitars every year, you know, and I'd go in there and look at them. And that's where I went to buy my strings and picks and stuff. And they sold it to a guy named Gordon Close, who was a pretty good guitar player, jazz guitar player. And... Uh, Really nice guy. And one day I was in there, and there was this hippie over in the corner sitting down on a chair playing great guitar. You know, and I was like, Gordon, who the hell is that, man? He said, that's my new guitar instructor, Bill Frizzell. And I was like, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> I want to I take lessons with this guy, you know. And I was already, you know, playing professionally yeah. and, you know, you know, practicing a lot and trying to learn stuff but when I studied with Bill I didn't even meet him that day by the way I just I was too shy to go over and say anything to him and he didn't really seem like he wanted to talk to anybody anyway and uh, so he really opened up my head yeah. about the fretboard and yeah. chord knowledge and he was he had been studying with Jim Hall and I think he kind of just transferred what he learned from Jim Hall onto me you know and um that lasted for a couple of months, maybe three or four months at the most. He can't remember and I can't either, but I know I took quite a few lessons from him. I mean, it had to be in at least eight, you know, for sure, and yeah. maybe more. And uh, Do you remember any specifics that you learned from him or any concepts? It or was just, you know, he showed me how to, you know, all the positions, you know, and, and how to think about scales and, and chromatics and slurs and, you know, notes that aren't in the scale, leading tones and all that stuff. And then chord theory, you know, all the basic stuff like you don't need to play the root, you don't need to play the fifth, but the third and the seventh or, or the sixth or, that's, or the ninth, those are the money notes, you know, those are the ones you need to concentrate on. Yeah. You don't need those other notes, you know. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And how to arrange things with the melody on top and, you know, what you need to put underneath it, you know, be economical with your, you know, you don't have to play a lot of notes. You just, you know, he was all about economy. 
and, and trying to get the most information to the listener with the least amount of, you know, notes and stuff, you know. So, well, you know, just to we'll take a little a little sidetrack here. Uh, how do you approach the neck of the guitar? Like, do you think chord shapes? Do you think scales? How how do you you know how do you look at the well, neck it's of funny, the guitar? Well, it's funny. I. I was I, I I sometimes have to ask myself those kind of questions because I've had a lot of requests and since this pandemic thing happened for me to give lessons to people on Zoom, you know, or yeah. you know, FaceTime or whatever. And I've kind of decided, you know, I've never really been a much of a music scholar really about, you know, the guitar like some people are, but I do think in chord shapes, or more specifically, just I think about triads, and I think about the the notes in the chord, and what and the extensions, you know, like maybe the ninths and the and the flat fives and and you know the sixths and the sevenths and those kind of things. Um, that's what I think about. Okay. And even when I'm playing single string stuff. Um, I think I got too bogged down for a while when I first started learning to play scales. I, I was real thorough about it. You know, like every possible way you could play a, a G major scale on the guitar. And then, you know, I tried to learn all different keys and where, where the, you know, everything is and how to connect everything. And, and then I thought, you know, it's better not to think too much about scales because it limits you because a lot of times you can play a lot of different notes that aren't in a scale and it's more if you think more about the chords that'll free your your mind up a little bit to add notes that you wouldn't think about if you were playing a scale you know so yeah that's kind of the way i look at it because i think you know a lot more often than not what i play is a lot of notes that aren't in the scale of the key of the song I'm in, you know, playing leading tones, you know, like, you know. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Semitone down. Yeah, so, you know, a lot, a lot of that stuff. You know, you're playing stuff that's not, you know, you, you if you were thinking about a scale, each of those as a part of whatever scale, it would it'd boggle your mind. But if you're thinking about just the chords, you know, you know, you know, you're thinking about the chords, and that just then you're playing the notes in the chord, and then maybe notes that lead into that. So, yeah, I guess chords yeah. and triads. Sometimes you know you think about. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, there I'm. I'm thinking triads. Yeah, yeah. So another thing that uh, you're you're really good at uh, jumping in between different styles and playing in the bag. So let's say if you're playing with Chris Scruggs, you're going to play in an appropriate, you know, way for yeah. that. For that well, type of music. If you're going to play yeah. jump blues with somebody, if you're going to play rockabilly, if you're right. going to play with Marty Stewart, if you're going to play with the pretenders, yeah. you always yeah. kind of jump well, into those things. Yeah, well, a lot of you know, a lot of times, 
with those, when you're thinking along those lines, when, you're, when I play with Chris Scruggs, for instance, we're playing country music that was recorded between 1946 and 1955. And there was basically about five guitar players that played on all those records. Sammy Pruitt, Zeke Clements, Grady Martin, Hank Garland, and uh, Jabbo, that guy that played with little Jimmy Dickens. Yeah. A couple of those. But not very many extras on top of that. So basically, I'm just trying to sound like Hank Garland and, and Sammy Pruitt. You know, when I'm playing with Chris Scruggs. So yeah. I'm just kind of thinking along, well, what would they have done? Yeah. And you're playing, you know, you're trying to ape the sound of a of a Epiphone Deluxe with Bigsby pickups, you know, archtop guitar. You know, play, play on the neck pickup down by the bridge. Well, I wouldn't be using reverb, though, with those guys. That kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Do you ever use like heavier gauge strings on a gig like it to help keep you from like bending? Yeah, like I do. I don't. I use uh, normally I use a guitar with a wound third and flat wound strings and you know hollow body, yeah. that kind of thing. Although I did play this one several times recently because I just got it and I wanted to check it out. So Jazzmaster Ultra. Yeah, a very, cool guitar. Very, it's a pretty cool guitar. It's a great guitar. It has a they you know has a few different things that the Jazzmaster didn't have like these noiseless pickups and it's good. I like it. Yeah. yeah. So let's uh, let's let's kind of you know, let's jump back. So you uh, you you made the jump to move to Nashville and you start playing with you start playing with Sweethearts of the Rodeo yeah. and, and you play. With Actually, a, I came here. To play with them, I uh, was living back in Denver. I'd been living in Chicago. I'd been playing in New York. Lived there for a while, and ended up back in Denver playing in a country band for money, which is something that I did from the mid '70s on. Uh, when I was when I was 18, 19 years old, my parents moved to Kansas, and I was you know I'd grown up in Denver, and I had. You know, I played in like loads of bands and, you know, had a, you know, really, I was really on my way to doing that. And that's yeah. all I was going to do. And that's all I did. And when they moved to Kansas, I was like, well, I can't move to Kansas, you know. They, were, they lived in rural Kansas. They went into business down there, which was good for them because it worked out well. And my sister was younger than me, and so she had to go with them, but I didn't have to go. So I just stayed in Denver. And I... Kicked around with no money and no work, or very little work for a while. And I stumbled into this uh, place down the street from uh, where I was staying. And it was uh, just a little nightclub tavern. And there were these old guys in there playing country music, and they were really good. They were excellent in their characters. And they were playing old country. And this was in the 70s. They were playing Hank Williams and... That kind of stuff, and Merle Haggard, and uh, Ray Price, that kind of stuff, and they, they were just—I'd go in there and watch them play, and I was kind of a punk rock-looking kid, you know, uh, you know, leather jacket and t-shirt and jeans and tennis shoes, and you know, and they—they're like, well, who is this guy, you know? <laughs> but then I got to know them, and they found out I was a musician. They got me up to sit in and. One thing led to another very quickly, and I was in the band. 
as the second guitar player. And so I was like, yeah. And I was making $40 a night, five nights a week, you know, which when you're, you know, 20 years old. It's pretty good. You know, I had a fake ID and I was, you know, I was like, hey. <laughs> Suddenly I was like, yeah. And I had rock and roll bands that I played in. Well, you didn't work all the time, you know. And yeah. I had a, I had a progressive jazz band that I played in, and we hardly ever played. And but we practiced all the time. But we did when we did play out, we did well. I mean, it was a, you know, we were, we were one of the jazz bands in Denver that was playing. We played like Carla Blay tunes and and uh, you know Weather Report tunes and stuff like that. And I was the only guy in the band that played chords, so. It was a, me and a sax player and a bass player and a drummer. So it was a real challenge yeah, for me to play to that kind of music. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I got to hold down everything, you know, with the guitar, you know, playing piano tunes and stuff, you know. That was really good for me, but we didn't, you know, there was no, as Johnny Smith once told me, he said, don't be a jazz guitar player, son. There's no money in it. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> so, well, you know, and, uh, so, you know, I had a rock and roll band, and I had a jazz band, and I was playing in a country band. Yeah. And, and, and how did the country band turn into moving to Nashville? Well, um, it was through a rock, my own rock and roll band that I ended up going to Chicago and, and New York. But I always kept my—I was really familiar with everybody on the country scene in Denver, the old country scene. And I loved all those guys. They were just— characters and they were there was a whole subculture that I'd never I just lucked into it you know and I had two it was like I lived two lives really yeah I had my rock and roll life in friends and then I had my country alter yeah you know secret lifestyle guys that are like and, your dads and, or your and my rock and roll music. friends yeah. would be like what are you playing that country music for man I was like because these guys are really good and I really like the, the the music and it's fun and I'm making really good money and I can Send in a sub if I get a gig, and they don't get mad, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I met a bunch of great musicians. Uh, uh, Ronnie Miller was the first steel player that I worked with, and he was a uh, steel player for Charlie Pride for the last 27 years, I think, something like that. Wow. He's a great player, you know, killer player. And, you know, I was, like, working with these people. They're really good. But... Um, I was uh, playing in, the, I had this band, we were playing in this biker bar. It was a kind of a country band that played blues and and uh, also blues and boogie, but mostly country kind of stuff. And we had a real good uh, singer. Our bass player was a really good singer. He could sing like Ray Price ballads and really sell them, you know, that kind of stuff. He could, he, it's always good if you have a guy that can really sing a ballad. And really, he had a style and a sound, and, you know, he was very cool. And uh, that was a good band. We played this biker bar that was just insane for quite a few years. But they paid us really well. The, the people that ran the place really liked us, and they let us do whatever we wanted, you know. And it was like, it, it was a, a kind of a you know rough clientele, but they liked us. They were never... You know, there was never any trouble or anything like that. But anyway, um, yeah, I was playing at this bar, and my friend called me. He'd been living in L.A. He's a keyboard player, and he was uh, calling from Nashville. 
saying the sweethearts of the radio, we're you know, going to open for Alabama on this tour, and they, they've got a hit record on the charts. Do I want to come down and do it? And I was like, sure, man. He said, well, there's a catch. I said, what's the catch? He said, well, rehearsal starts in three days. And I was like, oh. He said, can you do it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I never thought about going to Nashville. I'd never been to the South. I'd lived in New York City, lived in Chicago, grew up in Denver, been to LA, but I'd never been anywhere in the South, yeah. ever, you know, and I never had thought about it, you know, just never crossed my mind. I was like, yeah, I'll go down to Nashville, rehearse for a couple of days and go out and do a three-week tour, see how that works. Yeah, man, why not? I can always come back here and play my little silly gigs here in Denver and, you know, I'll, I'll be fine, whatever. And so I was thinking that it would just be for a short time. And one thing led to another. I had ended up, um, I eventually became the band leader. And I had that gig for five years, you know. And they were great people to work for. Just like they ran a smooth operation, you know. Everything was always right. Nothing ever was messed up. It was always just easy, you know. Wow. Easy people to work for, really nice. So then you kind of went through a succession uh, of, 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 you know, cu country artists that you, you played with. I think you... you I went, went from there to Patti Loveless because yeah. I, I got called to audition on that. And I thought, you know, she was at that time, she, she'd had like two or three, three albums out, I think. Four. I think, yeah, maybe she had just released her fourth. I don't know. And um, I was a big fan of her early work. Yeah. You know, I really thought she was good. I liked her singing a lot. And so I went down to audition, and I ended up getting the gig. And uh, so I did that for two years. But then she was, she had switched labels, and it was at this time when you know, when Garth Brooks came into the picture, and and suddenly there was pressure on everybody to put on a show, right? You know, and all this. And she was just like one of those people who just stood there. And, sang into the mic, you know, she wasn't a show person at all. And they, you know, were hiring chore choreographers, and, you know, I mean, you know, stylists and all right. this stuff. And I'm just like, and they cut all this pop, sappy, syrupy stuff. And I was like up there playing on that stuff. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I got to get out of here. I just couldn't dig the direction of the music. Right. You know, I was like, it wasn't what it her early records sound like and it was you know keyboard synth oriented pop kind of stuff and I didn't care for the, the songs at all and I was like okay it's time to go so I just I, I exited yeah and um, and then I got a gig playing with Rodney Crowell and that was fun I enjoyed that and did some recording with him and uh, that was post Stuart Smith yeah yeah, what a great guitar player. Woo! That guy's so good, man. I love him. He was really good. One of the best that's ever come through this town, man. Great on a session, you know. Yeah. Just what he would play would just be so good. Was it daunting to cover his parts with, yeah. with Rodney? Yeah, it was fun to learn it, you know. Yeah. yeah, it was difficult for me to, you know. But I'd been in a band right before that where I was covering Albert, Albert Lee's parts, so... Yeah. Blue Side of Town yeah, and some of the you know, so, stuff. You know, there was a lot of that. Yeah. So, well, and uh, you had like the Steve, Steve Gibson's, uh, yeah, you, yeah. Know, G, you know, 
palm bender stuff that yeah, he did yeah, on, on some I was, of the things. Yeah. He had to cover those things. Yeah. And you don't really use a bender. Well, I guess you do now. Well, I, I did have a, for a minute, I bought one of those fender things that had a built-in bender, but it was a crummy guitar. Yeah. It was terrible. It had a, a strap pickup in the middle, you know, and I was like, it just sounded dead to me. Yeah. There was no tone in that guitar ever. I was just kerplunk, you know. Yeah. I was like, I can't put that. But I did dig the vendor, you know. Yeah. I, I learned some of Steve's parts yeah. you know, for, and Albert's yeah. parts. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot easier to play them with the vendor, but I could never get any tone out of the guitar. I sold it. Yeah. Now I have two guitars with vendors. Vendors. Now yeah. I'm going to get a third one. Yeah. yeah. The, the new, you know, the, we'll That's look at it later, but the, glazer, the, the yeah. new Glazer vendor so is good. really, really Yeah, it's really a long nice. throw. Yeah. And um, I've got a, a really nice telly with a Parsons White in it that Gene put in. It's really nice. Yeah. Super nice. Sounds great. So you went on from, uh, from Rodney, and, and then you kind of started getting into these kind of... Uh, you know, there was like Kim Ritchie. Yeah, and I played with her Williams for two. And, uh, Kim, well, Kim's gig was, uh, I did that for two years. And that was really a good situation because she was on Mercury. And Luke Lewis was the guy that was running Mercury at the time. He loved Kim. And he was like, I got all this money that I've made off of Shania Twain. I'm going to spend it on you. <laughs> and I'm going to put you out on the road and on your bus and, and, and pay your band. And, and he paid us. You know, wow. we went out on the road for two years and it was yeah. a great situation. And, uh, you know, she's the greatest person to work for ever. Yeah. What Kim Ritchie, the nicest songwriter, yeah. The, ne the great songwriter, killer singer. Yeah. So good. I mean, you never heard her sing one bad note ever. Not in two years. Not one bad yeah. note. She and you had those 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 records that you did, the the Richard Bennett produced one and yeah. then you had the I'm on the second one. Yeah, with Angelo, Angelo and yeah, I guess that was and me Leventhal produced one of the one track. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was the one I wasn't on that track, but yeah. he did that up at his place in New York just with her. Yeah. And uh that was a good tune. But uh yeah, that was really fun. I'm still friends with her, man. She's great. Really I love her stuff. And the Lucinda Williams, how did that come about? I was, um, I had, um, when I was playing with Rodney, I w we weren't working that very much, and my wife was out on the road with Patty playing fiddle and singing. And so I was, I, I was wanting to take some lessons, and I found this guy that had just graduated from Berkeley. I thought, that's what I need as a guy that just graduated and learn all the latest stuff, you know. <laughs> so I took some lessons from this guy, and uh, his name was Justin Thompson, and he was really a good, knowledgeable jazz guy, you know, knew a lot of stuff, and he was, I actually learned some stuff from him, and he was playing guitar with Greg Gehring, and Greg was playing down in the back room at Tootsie's, which didn't have a roof on it back in those days, and so there was no roof on the back room, and you could walk into the bar to get beer, but, right. but, but if you weren't going in inside you were you didn't have to be 21 to be there you could be in watching us and be you know 15 years old and it wasn't yeah. up, it wasn't illegal so he was he, had, he was doing these gigs in the back there with no under the stars and uh, there was a wall around us but there was no roof and uh, uh, I went down there to see him and I didn't know Greg, but uh, I went down to see Justin, and 
and Bucky Baxter was standing there talking to Greg, and Bucky said, hey, Greg, you got to get this guy up to play, you know? And Greg was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he said hi to me, and, you know, that was it, you know? So, so I'm sitting there watching him, and I'm like, holy shit, this guy is amazing. Where did this guy come from? You know, like this, he blew my mind, you know? And about four songs in, he says, we're going to get a friend of ours, Kenny Vaughn, up here to play, you know? And I was like, so I go up there, you know, and I take somebody's guitar. I can't remember the guy's name. You know, let me play his guitar, and I'm standing there, you know. And Greg launches into one of his things, you know, and I take, I take a couple of solos, and we, he says, you know, uh, yeah, so play another one, you know. So we played another song, same thing, you know. I played some, and then he he passed the solo to somebody else. <laughs> he, we're the, during the song, he says, "What are you doing tomorrow night?" And I said. Uh, I don't know. He said, be here at nine. <laughs> and so I was, I was like, okay. So uh, uh, I started playing there every Friday and Saturday with Greg. Wow. It was like uh, that summer I was hardly working at all. So it was really fun. And it was just like wild. Every night it was crazy in there. And we had a really big crowd and, and all these people, you know, like Raul would be in the audience. Lucinda Williams was there. And I was a big fan of hers. And uh, he, Greg, would take a break sometimes, and we we you know we'd do one show and then take a break and come back and do another show. We were kind of a two show band, and uh, and so uh, he'd get loose end up to play his guitar, and she'd get up and sing a couple of her songs while we were taking a break. And then there was a, a kind of a party crowd that would that developed where we'd go over to this guy's house that had a studio over by. Uh, uh, Centennial Park there in an old house, and we'd you know, party over there like four or five in the morning on Fridays and Saturday nights. And it was all in good fun. It was like nice music, art artists and musicians and stuff, you know. And it was kind of an intellectual crowd of cool people. Through that crowd and hanging out with Greg and playing with Greg, I got to know Lucinda a little bit, you know. And uh, she was recording her record called Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, and she just fired her guitar player. And and uh, she, I think they had called Buddy Miller in to, to replace what Gurf had done. Gurf Morlicks was her guitar player. And he was kind of like her Keith Richards to her Mick Jagger, you know. He was sort of the architect of her early um, two records with with a band, you know. She she had made two records before. She had a band, just solo um, acoustic records for uh, Folkways. And, uh, and then she had those two out that she, I think they recorded those in L.A. or Austin. I'm not sure. I think they recorded them in L.A. And so that's, this third album was uh, Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy were producing it in Nashville. And it was kind of an ordeal, I guess. They kind of had to re-record it in its in whatever and, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, that's cool. And I was friends with Steve Rowe. And uh, I guess at one point they decided that, you know, they're going to have to put a band together and go out and tour. And they called me, and I was unavailable at first. And they kept calling, and finally her manager, Frank Clary, called me up and said, hey, you know, this is gonna, we're going to amp this thing up. We're really going to get serious with it. We really like you to do it. And it started out just me and another guitar player and her, and then her boyfriend started playing bass. 
and then we got a drummer, you know, and the tours kept getting bigger and we just kind of kept going. And we did like three straight years of working all the time. Wow. And we ended up um, doing 30, 32 or 34 nights uh, opening for Tom Petty on a big tour, which was really great. Yeah. You know, it See was that. like, yeah. And I got to be friends with Tom and Mike and... Um, we, you know, they would, we'd hang out every day in the dressing room and, and look at their guitars and play guitars, you know. Like, <laughs> Which, <laughs> at one time, uh, the, my best story is Tom had a uh, an early 70s Ibanez Flying V. Yeah. And Mike had a real one. And Tom was like, now play my V. Now play Mike's. You can't tell me that Mike's is better than mine. Mine is really good. You know, and... and Tom always had the best guitars. Like his guitars were better than anybody's. Like right. he had the best examples of them. Mike had good guitars, but his were more quirky. Like maybe there was something wrong with it. You know, yeah, like more of a player chase, guitar. Chase, yeah. Change pickup or something, you yeah. know, like whatever. He had a great guitar. He has great guitars, but Tom's were like pristine, you know, really good. And he had this Flying V that he insisted was better than Mike's. and. I didn't have the heart to tell him that Mike's was better. <laughs> I had to agree with him. <laughs> but uh, those guys were so nice to me, man. They were just like the greatest guys, nicest people. Just, you know, salt of the earth, Florida hippies that kind of were very standoffish, you know. Hmm. Yeah, kind of like them against the world. They didn't feel like they belonged to any scene at all, you know. They were insular with their little, their yeah, little group. Yeah, but really serious, you know, yeah. like super serious about every song they recorded, man. Every song we, they would record would be like their last song, you know. This is going to be it. This is, the, this is the big one, you know. Yeah. That was the way they approached everything. Wow, that's what like brought about that intensity. Great. So good, you know. Yeah. It was great to work with them. So after Lucinda... Uh, how long was it before you hooked up with Marty? About a year. I was just hanging out here in town doing um, recording sessions, which was, at the time, it was lucrative, but I didn't really, wasn't getting much out of it, you know. Wasn't really doing anything that was exciting. It was just like, that. at that time, we're talking about 2000, I, you know, I had quit listening to country music on the radio about 10 years prior to that. You know, I came, when I came to Nashville, it was during the great credibility scare, as Steve Earle called it. Right. And which, you know, he was on, Steve was on the radio with Guitar Town, and, um, you know, Desert Rose Band was on the radio. Um, Dwight was just starting to come on. You also had like Lyle Lovett was Lyle on Nancy. Lovett. You had all, all the yeah, um, uh, Nancy Griffith. You had all, yeah, these, all these artists right. that were on, you know, art, on majors. You know, writers that had deals and, and you know, not writers that had three people writing the songs, you know, these right. guys, like singular writers, yeah. you know, that were really good. You know, and, and they're, you know, they're, it was, it was I, I thought when I came here, that's what it was going to be like when I came to Nashville, you know, and at the, for the, for the first year in 87, it was. And then it just, like, went the other way, and it became, you know, cookie-cutter kind of music, and I was just, like, not interested, you know, anymore. And then 
when I started playing a lot of sessions in the 90s, at first I was like really excited, and, you know, but then like once you wore the new off of it, I was like, I don't fit in here, <laughs> you know, like this music has nothing to do with me whatsoever, you know. Yeah. I had zero in common with, you know, I just didn't, you know. And one day I was sitting at home and Marty Stewart called and he said, hey man, you want to start a band? <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'll start a band, yeah, yeah, sure, you know. Had you toured with him in the past? How no, did you know uh, him? So I just knew him. Uh, I met him one time, and he doesn't remember meeting me uh, there. I met him at uh, Alabama's June Jam or whatever that thing was called. Is that what it's called? I don't remember. Uh, it's, yeah. They had some festival in their hometown. Yeah, I can't remember what it was called, but I think it was called that. And I remember that day I, I met him backstage. And, uh, but then there was some other event that I was playing um, in Nashville, and he was at that, and he got my number. Yeah. He asked for my number. Why, why do you think he was drawn to you? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it seems like he's, he's drawn to, uh, you know. Weirdos? <laughs> well, musicians that, <laughs> like have, me? that yeah. have a, a, a style. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe so. And, yeah. and, and also, and, and usually that also kind of goes along with them having a, a, a look and right, such. Right, right. So, yeah. well, you know, when from the very first time we played, we got along real well musically. Yeah. It was easy. And we didn't really rehearse very much. We just we ran through some songs, and he said, well, okay, let's go play, you know, let's play, let's play some shows. And that's what we did. We just sort of, cobbled it together as we went along and it happened real quick you know yeah. where we had this really good band you know yeah. and, and it was I really liked it because it was real strong vocally you know it was like there was a lot of emphasis emphasis on the on the vocals right and I really liked that that was like yeah that, so many times that's the difference between really good bands yeah is the, the focus on, on yeah. vocals and when you've got Marty and then you've got Harry Stinson yeah and, yeah we always had a good third singer, you know, and, yeah. and I could sing the fourth part if need be, you know. So we had, you know, three-part harmony and four-part harmony all the time, you know, so that was good. And he let me sing a couple of my tunes, you know, like yeah. that I wrote. He would have those, you know, have me do that on stage when nobody else ever had me do that. You know? yeah. so that was a first for me. Yeah, because that, that's kind of old school, you know, yeah. country where you, yeah. you spotlight. Yeah, he spotlighted everybody in the band, you know, everybody yeah. sings a song or two, you know. Yeah. And it's still that way, you know, I still, and, you know, the songs I sing, I wrote them, you know. Yeah. Which is, you know, good for me. Yeah. Know? It's great. You get, get to push some some of your songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, uh, and it's, it's been a really good situation for a long time. Yeah. And... uh you are, you know, one of those guys that's, you know, not sitting at home. You're always getting out. You're always working. I mean, you're you're playing out in the clubs with with your trio. You're playing with Marty. Uh, you haven't been playing with Chris Scruggs lately, but with the Chris Scruggs things again, that's the older, yeah, we, older. Yeah, you know. we were doing that every Sunday night for quite a. We did that for about seven years every Sunday night. Yeah. It was a great time. I, I'm sure we'll get back to it. We played a few shows this summer. Outdoors uh, at uh, Post Eighty Two on Gallatin Road, we played on Saturday afternoons. That was really fun. Yeah, that was really it, man. That was cool. He he went in there. Um, with, they've got a deck with a cover on it, and we went out there with he put he 
he always plays into a mic. You know, he doesn't use, yeah. we don't use contact pickups or, or yeah. under saddle pickups on, a, on that gig. And he, yeah, he yeah. plays his acoustic guitar. He plays a lot of lead on his acoustic, but he plays into a mic. So we, when we went out to play the outdoor show, he just brought up an old uh, Vox Vibra, uh, Fender Vibralux. And he plugged uh, his acoustic guitar mic into channel one and his vocal mic into channel two. <laughs> and that's the PA. <laughs> you know? And it sounded so good. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> like, you know, the bass player had a little amp for his upright bass. I've got my little pro junior for my guitar. Billy Contreras brought a little amp for his fiddle. And Pete's got a, a little Fender amp for his steel. And, yeah. and then, you know, the, you know, the acoustic guitar is just going through the mic and the Vibralux. And man, it sounded, I was like, this is the best we've ever sounded. Yeah. You know, it's just like that music really works at a low volume, you know. Yeah. It's, there's no drums in that band. Because yeah. we, at that time, you know, those records recorded, they weren't using drums yet. Yeah. There's no drums on Hank Williams' records. But they sure do, they rock. They just don't have drums, but you don't think about it. You, know, yeah, you don't know drums. Yeah, but when you listen back to those, yeah. those early, early tracks, those pre-drums. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing through the years of, of touring and such, you've gotten to meet some of your, you know, guitar heroes or, or you know, who are some of them that, that uh, you have memorable, you know, experiences maybe being around some of your, you know, guitar heroes? Well, let me years? see. Um Working with Rodney, I got to work with Albert Lee in the studio. That was certainly a a great thing. You yeah, know? he was just mind-bogglingly great. I remember one time we did this one tune, and he played this just recklessly wild solo. It's like a roller coaster ride. It's like you're listening to it, like whoa, you know. And uh, the producer's like, well. We're Maybe uh, we take another pass to that solo, and we're all like, no, man. So they, they broke and went to lunch, and I stayed with the producer and Albert, and he did like 10 more takes on this, and every one of them was different, yeah. completely different. You know, and I was like, wow, every one of these is great. And they ended up keeping the original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it was so exciting. You know, yeah. it was just like, wow, what a nut. And he's really good. And that was really cool. Uh, Richard Bennett was a hero of mine, and um, I've—I'll tell you—I've my whole studio career was basically my mantra was: if I got stuck on something, I could always get out of it with what would Richard Bennett do, or what would Mike Campbell do? Those two guys, if I could just like channel them. I would get out of my rut. Like yeah. if I would be, you know, like sometimes you're, you know, they put a chart in front of you and you're expected to come up with a part quickly, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes you're like, what am I going to play, man? What yeah. And sometimes you don't come up with something right. You know, sometimes you, you come up with a perfect thing off the top of your head. Sometimes you're like, oh man, I'm the worst guitar player in the world. What am I going to do? And I would break that by imitating Richard Bennett or imitating Mike Campbell. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. So, what would be an example of you imitating Richard Bennett? Oh, of course, I'm going to ask you to imitate Mike Campbell. So, it'd be, um, it'd be, you know, be something like, um, 
something like that or maybe something like you know simple chordal yeah. double stops but pretty you know and and you know like low string melodies and and cool voices you know stuff you know just yeah. simple things like that whereas you know Mike Campbell would have been maybe more like um you know, you know, you know, you know I'm, this might be too loud. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, something simple like that. Yeah, but those yeah, but those those two uh, those two characters, yeah. those, they can pull you out of a lot of a lot yeah, of, a lot you, of problems. You know, you know, some a lot of times some, you know, you think of stuff that's maybe too complicated, and you, you sometimes you have to just stop and play something really simple. And then the producer's like, "You're you're his favorite guy that day." Yeah. If you play something that's you know catchy but simple and something that doesn't get anybody's way, but it's still got an attitude. You know, that's yeah. what. You know, oftentimes the simple thing gets gets all the raves. You know, yeah. you've played uh, you've played a lot of different guitars through the years. Boy, have I! So yeah. you know, it's just again, as someone that's you know watched and you know and enjoyed music and and been you know part of the scene, it's like I I remember seeing you playing like a a pink '60s Strat, you know, with like Sweethearts of the Rodeo. Yeah, and that like was a the guitar I came. That yeah. was the guitar I came to town you know, all, all with. It was a '66 Strat. Yeah, my you know you know one thing about you know I grew up in the '60s. My first guitar was a Tele, and looking back on my you know development as a guitarist all over all, all these years, I've learned I've kind of figured out what I did was I had to learn how to play each guitar. Yes. Like a Tele is a very sometimes difficult instrument because it's kind of spiky you know sometimes the bridge pickup or whatever and you have to learn how to play that guitar and make it work you know and that was my first guitar so I got good at playing a Telecaster and my second guitar was a Les Paul um, standard with two P90s and that was a whole different animal I had to learn how to play that guitar because it didn't sound like the Tele it didn't operate yeah. like it it had a different tone and a different thing about it, you know, and I, I got good at playing that guitar. My third guitar was a Strat, and that was really hard because it was like, this is totally different, you know? Yeah. This is like really, like the, I liked, I loved having the whammy bar, you know, on there. I, I, I'm not one of those guys that would block my tremolo. I would use it, and I set it up floating like you were supposed to, and I had to learn how to keep it in tune, which took forever to learn how to operate a Strat in tune. You know, I finally figured it out, but it was a lot of trial and error for me. And um, then I had to learn how to get all the different tones on it and how to make that um, thin little bridge pickup sound good, 
you know, and then I got good at making that guitar sound like I wanted it to sound. But it yeah. took me, you know, a lot of effort and a lot of time to make that guitar sound the way I wanted to. And then I had an ES-175, and I had to learn how to make that guitar work. It was easier on that guitar, I thought. And um, so those were my first guitars. And I, I think when you get a guitar, you have to kind of approach it you know, you have to see what it'll do, and you have to, you know, there's some things that they won't do, you yeah. know. So it it seems with the, you know, again, not that you've played some excessive amount of guitars or anything, no, like have, that, but you've played a lot of different guitars through the years, and yet you're telling me that you have to learn each guitar. So is that something that you enjoy, the challenge of, of getting another instrument? Is that something that, well, that you kind of... Well, I think, you know, it wasn't so... I, I'm, Of course, I enjoy playing, you know, but I think it was always like, like at first, it was like every time I got a guitar, I was like, I would come, a, I would like, it wasn't, wasn't working for me, you know? Yeah. Like, especially the Strat, you know, I really had to like completely readjust everything when I had a Strat, you know, it's like, this doesn't operate at all like a Tele, it's not where my Les Paul, this is totally different, you know? Yeah. And uh, I remember when I got, a, I bought a, in, in the mid 70s, I, I ran across a 61 Jazzmaster that was a really good guitar, super good. And I got it for nothing. And I was like, man, man, this is cool. And again, that was like a totally different kind of guitar. You know, it was like, this doesn't operate like the other Fender guitars I have. This is a different sound, different characteristic. I got good at playing that guitar too, you know. It's just, yeah. you know. They're all, they all have something they can do. I, I, I went through a period a lot doing sessions with taking my Jaguar. If, with flat-wound strings on it, and I found out that I, I could get a lot out of the Jaguar in the studio. Yeah. Like, it, it would cut through the track in a way that other guitars wouldn't. Yeah. had a slice to it, this kind of gnarly thing that would just, like, sit in the mix and jump out at you without taking up any space, but still had a lot of, yeah. you know, edge to it, you know? And it was... That's sometimes that's important, you know, is like finding a tone that works in a track and that's not going to get in anybody's way, but yet say something, you yeah. know. And that's hard to do sometimes. I'm going to go down a rabbit trail for a second. Uh, you have an instrumental that uh, it's called Burton's Move. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is oh, that yeah. Ja like James Burton? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll show yeah. you that. Um, yeah. yeah. I haven't played that one in a while. Yeah, um, just interested I was, with the with the the story, you know. Well, James is a, James is a character, as I'm sure you know. Yes. And um, I, I was in the best way possible. Oh, he's fabulous! I love yeah. him. But James is one of these guys that, like, um, if you play a session with him, I always sit next to him because we're the guitar players, you know. So, yeah. anytime he's, you know playing a session with me he, he'd always like switch over to the neck pickup in between takes and he'd be like playing like jazz licks like you know like and playing stuff like that you know and then he would play like uh you know like maybe you know like he'd play stuff like that just to show you that he could you know right you know like he and, and they all it's always really good, you know. He's like over there yeah. playing stuff, you're and, like, hey, and, and he's he nodding at you. Yeah. And then one day I was well, I think it was at the Opry. 
Oh, this is a good story. Um, we, Marty invited him to play on the Grand Ole Opry because he'd never played on a Saturday night at the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. Right? Because he played on the, he was part of the Hayride and he'd done all sorts of right. things, but never he, played I mean, on the played, Saturday played night. played with opera. Elvis Presley, but he never yeah. played on the Opry on a Saturday night. And Marty said, we got to fix that. So he yeah. came out to the Opry and he played with us. And we had our, we always bring our amps to the Opry, you know, because yeah. they, we don't like their amps very much because, you know, we're good at playing through our amps, but maybe not so good at playing through their amps. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, We've invested a lot into our sound, so we, we that we bring our amps. And James just plugged into this awful twin that they used to have over by the piano. It was a blackface twin reissue, and it was a terrible. And I, I, I know that ain't awful. Yeah. It was horrible. James walks out there with this crummy guitar of his. It's like this. It has like three Fender Lace sensor pickups, and and he has like eight gauge, the, the gauges are eights, and I picked up his yeah. guitar, I was like, how do you play this thing, you know? Yeah. Like, this thing is a piece of junk, you know? It's like, how do you even get anything out of it? So, we go into this song of ours that we do, and Marty takes the first solo and just rips it, just like, he's up there just tearing it a new one, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and he gives it to me, and I do my best solo I can, you know? I'm go for it, you know? And then Marty says, take it, James, and he completely obliterates us. He sounds twice as good as we do, and he's playing his ass off, and he's like, looking at the audience like, I'm James Burton, and I'm gonna show these guys how to play the guitar, and he did, man. And I was like, no pedals, no nothing, into that crummy amp with that crummy guitar, and he sounds 10 times better than we sound. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, you know, like, God, the guy's amazing, but anyway, he was, Backstage and yeah, and I was like, "Wow, that's cool." He said, "Hey, yeah." So I was like, you know, I was on the bus the next day, and I was like, "Check it out, Marty." Yeah. yeah. So I made a little tune and called it Bur Burton's Move. Yeah. And and that's it. Yeah, and and what's neat about that, what's what's unusual, is most of the time when you play that kind of lick, it's usually played up higher on the neck. Right. And so because of the fact that you're playing yeah. it on the on the low wound yeah. strings, it just has yeah. that has that. And, and also, it's a nice variation of the kind of overplayed, like working man blues yeah, lick. Yeah, yeah, it just yeah. it sounds better. It's yeah. more interesting. So yeah, yeah, I really, you know, when I when I heard that, I was like, yeah. So it's funny, you. you know, when you think about uh, working man's blues, when you go back and listen to the record, there's really not anybody playing too no. much. Not, yeah, it's only yeah. in there a little bit, but yeah. really, it's hardly there. You yeah. know. It's, he just plays it a couple of times, but his solo is so great, man. Yeah. And you know? Burton's, you know, it, it sounds like he's using a capo. Yeah, it sounds like he, he could be using a capo, you know, because they're playing an A-flat, and it almost sounds like he's playing... They're just tuned down a half step. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, um, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard both tuned down a half step a lot. Wow. And Buck um, even tuned down a full step on some of those songs. Yeah. 
Yeah, because there's a couple where Don Rich is playing in, uh, he's playing in A, but they're in G. Yeah. You know, that's he's, because he's playing a low D and he's not tuned right. down, yeah. just the low Ds, the whole guitar's down. The whole, yeah. Wow. Yeah, a lot of their stuff's in E flat and Haggard's too, especially in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. They never did that in the 70s, but they did in the 60s. And I'm, you know, the, there's uh, Bill Monroe sometimes tuned up to F, tuned up a half step high. Wow. Higher to get more um, cut, you know. Tension, for, cut, and, yeah. and impact. Yeah. Wow. And the Who really? tuned up a half step a lot, right? <laughs> no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the Who in 1970. Man, whoa. That was the most fierce show I ever saw. Talk about going for the throat, man. I've never seen anything like it before or since. They were like a SWAT team, you know? They just never yeah. quit, and they never said anything to the audience. They just came up, and there was just one song after another. Just they like, just kept pummeling the audience. They never quit, man. There was no time between the songs. It was just like <sighs> it was like a rat, a, a, a terrier shaking a rat by the neck. Yeah, just <laughs> never gave up. They never, man. They were relentless, and they were so good. Yeah. You know? Well, let's let's Crazy. talk let's talk gear a little bit. So you uh, let's because you've got this uh, this telly in hand. Let's uh, let's talk about this. So it looks like this is a, a Brad Paisley. Yeah, model it's that, a Brad Paisley yeah. um, uh, model. And it's a fantastic guitar. I was down at the Fender shop when these things came out, and yeah. I was like, oh, another Silver Sparkle guitar. That's just what the world needs, you know. And I, so I you know pulled it down, you know, and I said, man, this guitar is really nice. They said, yeah, that's the new Brad Paisley model. I said, yeah, wow. And they said, you want to try it? Just take it, man. You know, so I took it and I liked it. And this pickup um, is, uh, the Tim Shaw came up with the pickup. Yeah. And Brad has a load of pickups, as you know. Yeah. And he has that one pickup that he thinks is his favorite. And it's off a 63 telly, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tim Shaw said, he said, there was something about that pickup that kept bugging me. He said, and he was laying in bed, like, you know, he had measured it and, you know, looked at it and trying to figure it out. He says, why is it showing this amount of output? And he says, it, it said something in the back of my mind. He said, laying in bed, and he's like, it's a P bass. He said, that's what it is. And so he went and um, wound to pick up with the same amount of windings as a P bass, and that's what this is. He said, well, obviously, he, he thinks that somebody had um, forgotten to recalibrate the winding machine yeah. at Fender when they were winding pickups. And they got and, too many winds. And on. they put out quite a few pickups, I think, that had this sound yeah. in 63. I think it was a mistake. Yeah. That's what he thinks, anyway. Yeah. <coughs> and you've. You've done some modifications to it. You got one of these three strings. Yeah, that's Blazer put that on when yeah. he put the bender on. So anyway, uh, yeah, this is a. It has the long throw Glazer bender, the cool pickup. <laughs> so I got the bender thing going on. So. Was there, uh, 
Were you tempted to avoid the B-Bender because of Marty for a while, or, or did it just... Um, no, I always messed around with him, you know, yeah. and um, I always liked him, and uh, I just decided to put one on this guitar because Glazer had been working on the long throw, Yeah. and um, I wanted a long throw bender. I have a, a Parsons White with that long throw, and I really like that sound, you know. And Glazers were always a short throw, right. but then he changed... To, to accommodate people who wanted the long throw. So you can get the... Yeah. There's just... It's, it's nice. Yeah, there's just a, a difference in the, the sound that you're able to get when it takes longer to get yeah. to the, yeah. the end result. You're yeah. able to have more control yeah. over the musicality yeah, it's, of it. Yeah, it's just yeah. a different sound, you know. It's yeah. kind of like the difference between a show bud and an Emmons, you know. Yeah. The Emmons are quicker, the show bug... Show, but it's a longer throw on the steel, you know. Yeah. So you, you've also uh, changed the wiring up here. You have uh, you have some yeah. uh, some phase. Yeah, there's there. a phase uh, adjustable phase shifter. Um, I mean, out of phase circuit here uh, that I can. There's a pot under here that can control the amount of out of phase. Got a, I, I got a little bit more low end than than if it was completely right. dead out of phase. So I, I got a, got backed off a little so it's not completely out. But you can adjust it. A guy named Pete Canaris in Baltimore makes these things. And you yeah. can just buy the whole plate and just drop it right into your guitar pre-wired. So there's a pot under here that's glued in. And um, when you pull up on your tone knob, that activates the out, out of phase circuit as long as you're in between, uh, in the middle setting here. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. You've got an old Thomas organ uh, Vox. Yeah, back man, here my, today. that's a Vox Cambridge Reverb's great, great amp. Yeah. Uh, I first started using one of those over at a studio in Nashville. They're, they had one there, a place called Hum Depot. It was Greg Morrow's amp, and I used to play through it all the time. And I was like, man, I got to get one of those. I was down in New Orleans, and um, they had one in the store at uh, International Vintage, Stephen Staples, and I said. Sell me that. He did. Yeah. Yeah. They're really, really neat. It's so, amps. man, it's just so versatile. I can get so much out of that amp. It's yeah. a two EL84s. It's like a Princeton reverb with a Vox tone, kind of. Yeah. It's more really like a Princeton than it is a Vox, but it, man, yeah, it's really great. It sounds very, very Fendery. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's, the, that's totally Fender. Yeah. Great. That, yeah, that's a very nice yeah. uh, tremolo on there. Yeah. All right, let's uh let's let's pull some you you had this guitar earlier. Yeah. Uh so this is a Jazzmaster Ultra. Jazzmaster Ultra. Man, I've been using that a lot in the studio. I have flat wound strings on it. Uh they're kind of light gauge. And um, I think they're tens. Yeah. You know, but um, I use it all the time. Yeah. It's a really good tone. You mentioned strings. So what 
like on that guitar, what do you for do you do you mainly use flat ones or round ones? No, these are round ones. Okay, and what gauge? Um, these are uh, what do they call those? They're the ones that Brent Mason uses. Um, I think they're nine point fives. Yeah. What, is that what he uses? I yeah, think? that's what yeah. he at least yeah. used for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what he uses now, but he, yeah. he, that's what he was using for quite a while. I've worked with him a couple of times. I was like, what are you using, man? Yeah. And um, I tried them. I really yeah. liked them on the telly. I don't use them on anything else, but the telly. And th this guitar uh, had a really nice, uh, this circuit. Yeah. Instead of being like the uh, like it was in the, in the olden days, where it was kind of a preset. Yeah, it was a uh, cool, I really, really like the old circuit too. Yeah. Um, but this is their latest model here. And so what they have on here is a couple of, um, things like they have a series parallel switch for the middle yeah. position. And um, then um, they have a individual tone controls for the two pickups. Here's for the um, neck pickup and here's for the treble pickup. And then over here they have a an adjustable out of phase circuit also so you can you can uh, you can adjust the amount of out of phase so you can get the t-bone walker That's such a huge improvement over the out of phase thing on, yeah. on fenders, you know, on both those guitars. Yeah. Because that's the, the advantage that the Gibson guys had is that when they had right. to pick up out of phase, well, you just have the separate volume controls yeah. and you can kind of back yeah, off on find, one of them. Find the perfect sweet spot. Yeah. 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 And then uh, let's see, which let's let's pull out. You, you've also got your strat. Yeah. I always take a strat with me to yeah. a session. So. Tell us about this strat. Uh, this is a guitar that I bought in Nashville about. 21, 22 years ago um, for 200 bucks. And I've owned so many strats over the years and this one is one that I will never get rid of. I just like yeah. this. It's an 84 Squire of all things. And um, it's just a great guitar, man. It just feels so good, you know, it's just. Just sounds good to me. I've got the uh, bridge pickup wired to this tone control here and then this pickup this tone control is for the neck pickup i switched it from from right. this to that so i could take some of the edge off the bridge i'm a big johnny guitar watson guy and i always loved his his um Strat sounds and his uh, crazy guitar tones. It was always really trebly and yeah. just like totally rude, you know, like just the rudest sound, but it just sounded so good. And I always like playing a Strat to get that Johnny guitar Watson sound. Just love it.
but yeah. but fat. Yeah, you know. it's got that bell yeah. tone, man. Yeah. What kind of pick are you using? Uh, this is a Dunlop uh, 96 millimeter. I use this for electric a lot. I use uh, mediums on acoustic mostly. Yeah. And I always make sure I take a, a thin pick to a session. Because, yeah. man, sometimes you got to have a thin pick on a session. It's, yeah. a, it's a better tone sometimes. Yeah. You know? Because you, you get less of, I mean, well, it can be papery sounding, yeah. or you could just get yeah. less of the pick sound. Yeah, and sometimes you want that papery sound, especially on acoustic for yeah. playing rhythm stuff. It sounds, yeah. you know, like if you're playing a 12-string acoustic rhythm part, it sounds so good with a thin pick. It just sounds perfect. You know? Yeah. Picks are very important. Tell us about your board. Here. Well, this is just a basic board. I have, um, uh, I, yeah, I have an amp reverb and amp tremolo on my amp, but I've got a fuzz face, and I've got a MXR Timmy. Uh, normally, that's a tube screamer in this position, but I'm trying this out. I kind of like it. It's pretty cool. It's just a distortion pedal. Uh, the Timmy's are made here, right? Yeah. The the. The original one. The original one. So the, I mean, yeah. those are made by, by MXR. I think he had a licensing thing because yeah. he couldn't keep up with demand. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And I think that's really good. Yeah, um, Paul Cochran. Yeah, yeah, right. And yeah. Uh, then this is a compressor. I really like it. It's a barefoot, uh, pale green compressor. That's a C-verb, reverb, spring reverb simulator, sort of. That's a Dumlot, um, Jimi Hendrix wah. That's a barefoot... Um, Univibe. <laughs> Let's get some. It gets good warbly sounds, you know. It's really fun. I like that. Yeah. So, and this is a Strymon uh, delay pedal, which is really a good delay. It just works really well. delay stuff. It does it does everything you need. Yeah. It's pretty simple really. It doesn't um, it's not uh, it's it just does delay stuff really. It's not really a looper. It does have a loop thing you can use, but I don't use it for looping at all. I'd, I'd rather use a separate looper pedal if I was going to use a looper. It has a spring reverb on it. Turn off my reverb. Um, the, let's see, where is it? Here we go. It's really... Yeah. There's something about when you combine the delay and reverb on this pedal, it really is really great. And you can control the... your um, the 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 fidelity of the, the, you can simulate tape decay and uh, transport um, inefficiencies. Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool.
I dig them. The reverb and delay together is really cool because they almost feed into each other or something yeah. when they're on the same pedal. And it has a... Uh, different heads you can activate. You can do like um which is the old uh, Benson Echo Rec kind of sound. Yeah. Like I was glad to see, you know, as you were coming in and we were plugging in your board, I was it was it was nice to see that you had a true tone. Uh, I was know, glad to see that too one, because one I went to Corner Music uh, when my uh, I just needed to get a power supply real yeah. quick, and I was like, "Tell me the best one you got," and that's what they they sold the true tone. So we well, have a friend at Corner Music. We do, <laughs> and thank you, Corner Music. Yeah, it wasn't my. It was it was I totally. I've been shopping there for thirty five years. Yeah, and. Um, They've never done me wrong. It's all, I mean, the thing about a local music store like that is, be, like, I've bought pedals that failed, and I could have called the manufacturer up and said, hey, you know, or I could just get in the car and go over to the corner and put it on the counter and said, hey, man, this quit working. And they just come back, give me another one and take it. No, they don't even ask a question. They're yeah, like, sorry, they, you know. Yeah, they just, just take, swap it out. Yeah, I mean, the, they're so good about stuff like that, you know. And they, yeah. they've always done, you know, they're really good with prices and, yeah. and quick service and all that kind of stuff. They're just a good, good local store. Support your local music store. Absolutely, man. There's something to be said for having a personal relationship with them. You know, yeah. they, they do really well. Yeah. Well, Kenny, thank you so much for uh, for coming down. Thank you so much for you know sharing some of your story and, and experiences and, and, uh, and playing for us are really appreciated. Oh, sure, man. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally got it together. Yes. Right.